This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. When the nights get cold and the lights go out, the sun is gone behind the clouds, and you feel lost, and I'll reach out to guide you home with my lighthouse. Welcome to Lighthouse of Hope. I'm your host, Michael Hempseed. I'm so glad you're joining us today. Uh, Over the past couple of years, I've been writing another book with Dame Sue Bagshaw, and we're going to talk about that today. Uh, Dame Sue, I wonder if you could just briefly introduce yourself. Um, Hi, everybody. Um, Great to talk to you. Um, I guess sometimes I introduce myself as a youth worker with a medical degree, because I work with young people for most of my life. Um, between 10 and 25. Um, I do some doctoring, I do some teaching, and um, most of all, try and share knowledge and um, increase people's confidence um, and understanding and acceptance. And you're a senior medical lecturer at the university as well? Yes, so um, uh, I teach medical students and doctors and nurses, and anybody who'd like to listen. So the name of our book is Calming Your Child, and the reason we wrote this is, unfortunately, we've seen large numbers of young children experiencing significant levels of distress, anxiety, and often the way this comes out is in behavioural problems. And sometimes it's tempting to think that if a child gets really upset or they have an explosive tantrum, it's really easy to think they're being bad or they're being naughty. Uh, But so you encourage people to think a little bit differently, don't you? Yes, I think sometimes we need to look underneath the behaviour. Because when you think about children, they find often don't have the words or they find communication a little bit tricky um, in terms of putting things into words, but also explaining how they feel. Because feelings are feelings, it's very hard to find the words for them unless somebody's deliberately tried to teach them those words. Um, so often behaviour is a, is a actually a method of communication. So if we can actually see a child's behaviour as a a tool for communicating and actually try and find out what's underneath, what are they trying to communicate, I I think we get on much better. Um, Because often we take the attitude, oh, they're being bad, and we punish them. And that's the worst thing, because that shuts down the communication, and then we don't get anywhere, and the behaviour gets worse. So let's say you've got a child and they get really um, upset, they yell, they scream, they kick. What do you think are they trying to say with that behaviour? Sometimes it's just sheer frustration um, in that they just cannot get you to understand. Sometimes us adults can be pretty um, unattentive. We often don't listen very well. And we're often so wrapped up in our own problems and our own feelings that we actually tend to ignore the feelings of others, especially our children. Um, And that's terrible to say, but sadly, it's quite true. One of the things that we try and get across in the book is to look beyond the behaviour. Instead of just thinking a child's naughty, asking what could be going on. So one of the things we know is that when a lot of people are anxious, they can be quite aggressive. And so sometimes it's really easy to look at a child that might, say, kick an adult and just think, oh, they're a little psychopath or something like that. But maybe when we look a bit deeper, maybe they're actually really worried about things. And sometimes we think, well, you know, what do children have to worry about? They don't have to pay a mortgage. They don't have a job to go to. Life should be pretty sweet for them. 
But Sue, what have you found are some of the things that even young children worry about? Well, I think we have to be aware that children are very concrete. Um, They think about things that they can feel, touch, hear or see. Um, And so they worry about abstract stuff that they can't understand. Um, So, you know, they hear a lot of the stuff on the news and they hear about climate change and they go, oh, we're going to drown. Um, Or they might hear about maybe, you know, there's a whole load of terrible things happening on the news every day. I think it should be banned personally. Um, But, you know, wars and murders and burglaries. And I don't know about you, but when you um, hear the news, it's written so that it's going, it sounds like it's going to affect you tomorrow. And that's an abstract thinking adult. Never mind a child who really has not much future thinking and really thinks it's just about now and me and it's going to happen to me tomorrow. And therefore, you know, you can imagine why they get anxious. And we know that adrenaline and noradrenaline that are produced when you're anxious also can make you angry. They're two sides of the same coin. So it's no wonder that we're getting more violent behaviour in the, in the, in the um, playgrounds. Um, and, you know, we're hearing about children who are quite violent, whereas we never used to hear about that. And to me, I think we, we need to understand what's leading to those behaviours. One of the things we talk about in the book is sensory issues. Um, Some people may not have heard of this, but this is where people perceive the world more intensely or more softly than other people. So if someone is overly sensitive to sound, if someone's walking on concrete, most of us just hear that as a quiet noise. But to someone with sensory issues, they can hear each one of those sounds as a really booming and invasive sound. For example, they might hear that sound as if someone is banging a hammer on an anvil right next to their ear. And if that was us, you know, maybe we could stay calm for five seconds, ten seconds, but then we get pretty angry and upset. We're discovering that more and more children are experiencing sensory issues. It doesn't just occur with sound. Um, A lot of children with sensory issues around touch, um, they complain about tags on clothing or the inside seams of socks. And sometimes as adults we think they're just complaining for the sake of it, they just need to get over it. But actually sometimes these things can be a lot more painful than we realise. A way that oversensitivity to sight can come out is some people say looking at white paper can be as if they're looking at a spotlight. And so the problem with this is this just regulates people. So if we have little Johnny in a classroom and he picks up a chair and throws it through the window, we immediately think, well, little Johnny's really bad and he's very naughty. But we don't ask, you know, could that child be overloaded? And if we think back to times when we've been in an environment where we've been full of loud, booming noise and we just can't feel like, we feel like we can't get out of there, that's pretty overwhelming for adults. So as Sue said, sometimes we need to ask about what's going on. I think um, it's getting more common, and there's a lot, lots of different things that lead to it, um, mostly around things that happen to your brain as you're developing, but, and mostly things that we can't do that much about. But we can help people understand so that they know that their brain is special um, and it um, is more sensitive, and therefore help them with things like noise-cancelling headphones or even ear blockers of some sort. Um, and trying to avoid lots of bright light and helping them understand why they get like they get. Um, I think that's there's lots of things we can do to help. 
And often if we ask a child what's wrong and they've got sensory issues, we'd expect them to be able to tell us. One of the big problems is a lot of children have grown up with this their whole life and so they don't realise there's anything wrong. Uh, I know of, I think she was a 16-year-old girl that had been to multiple counsellors, multiple therapists, she was suicidal, she was self-harming, and no one could figure out what was going on. Uh, We asked, um, you know, does this person have a sensitivity to noise? And it turned out she did. And you might ask, well, why on earth didn't she tell any of those other therapists? And the reason was she didn't know she had this. She'd grown up with it her whole life, and she thought this was normal. So sometimes adults have to try and um, think carefully about, you know, what could be causing this behaviour. Another big thing we focus on in the book is sleep. So how important is sleep to our well-being? Oh, wow. You couldn't overestimate it. Um, it's, there's a reason why depriving people of their sleep is a method of torture. Um, you know, our brains just don't work very well when we don't sleep enough. So, um, yeah can't emphasize enough we know that lack of sleep probably leads to the, a lot of the depression and anxiety that's around at the moment across all age groups um, and we know that um, it's really important to get into a sleep routine as early in your life as you possibly can so that you help your sleep center in your brain really work well because when it doesn't it doesn't help you at all I'll just go over a couple of other findings that we found with sleep. Uh, one of the most interesting is there's a bit of the brain called the amygdala, and that's one of the parts of the brain that processes fear. Scientists have found that if someone doesn't get a good night's sleep, and this is children and adults, the amygdala shows 60% more activation. And that might really surprise you um, that just one night of poor sleep can do that. Now, normally there's a bit of the brain called the medial prefrontal cortex that acts like a bit of a break. But we found the link between the medial prefrontal cortex and the amygdala doesn't work so well when you're sleep-deprived. So it's a double effect. You feel more anxious and there's no breaks. So one of the things we know is there's many um, children, teenagers and adults that have got a lot more anxiety than the past. And if we really want to understand this, one of the big things that we need to look at is the impact of sleep. So I wonder if you could tell us, when you did your medical training, how well was sleep understood back then? Gosh, back then, hardly at all. Um, but there's been really so much more research on it now that we realise that it's, it's so important. Um, and I think um, we need to benefit from that research and learn how to apply that understanding in all of our lives. Um, I think if we knew about that research now, perhaps we wouldn't have invented the internet, (laughs) especially for it not to be 24-7. But we need to learn to discipline ourselves, use it well, and use it so that we don't keep awake all night. Yeah. And certainly um, there's something called fear of missing out, where people stay on their phones all night because they think, oh, what are my friends up to, or things like that. So we encourage everyone to put their phones in flight mode at night and just tell your friends, if I get a message during the night, I'll reply to you in the morning. Um, There doesn't have to be this instant communication. What do we know about nightmares? Well, it's really interesting because um, we know now that we process our memories during the night. Um, And there's a thing called rapid eye movement sleep, and we think that that is what's link to that brain processing of activities during the day. And we know that if something scared you in the day, um, then you really need to process it at night. 
But if you're not doing that because you're not getting enough sleep, then bingo, <laughs> you get scared in the day. So really important that um, we learn to realize that, that importance of that sleep um, and learn to realize that the processing that goes on and our brains are really quite active during sleep we think they do nothing they do masses um, and it's really important that we allow that to happen by giving ourselves that sleep one of the sad things that we're hearing is that unfortunately lots of families are almost falling apart because they've got children that don't sleep first of all they're often so anxious they won't sleep by themselves they'll stay with their mum and dad if they have a mum and dad, till, you know, one, two in the morning, um, they can't be alone. And then when they finally do get to sleep, they often wake up sometimes two, three, four, five times during the night with severe nightmares. They wake up screaming and the whole house wakes up. You can imagine after a few days of that, let alone weeks and months, uh, life isn't much fun. And sadly, we found uh, many people say, well, just go to bed earlier. And that doesn't really solve the problem. So we need to understand that some of these are more complex issues. Um, there's several treatments for nightmares. Uh, sometimes uh, various therapists can help. But a simple do-it-yourself solution is something called the dream completion technique. So let's say a child has a scary dream where they've been chased by a monster um, during the day, you get people to imagine in vivid detail how you want that dream to end. So a child might like a superhero to come and save them. If it's a dream, it doesn't have to be realistic. And it's been found for some people, not all, um, this can make a real difference and it can start to quieten nightmares down. The other helpful thing is to actually talk through things that have happened during the day at bedtime to try and help them to find solutions to the scary thing and, and put it in its place so that they can then do that while they're asleep as well to reinforce it. Yeah. In the book, one of the things we try and get across is there's no one-size-fits-all and there's no solution to every problem. So I think we give about 70 different uh, solutions to possible problems. One of the big ones that we know as many children, as we've mentioned, have anxiety. And the way we often try and deal with anxiety in children is we tell them, just calm down, don't worry about it. And the problem is when children are really anxious, they don't really understand words. And I'm sure all of us have been really panicked or worried about something. And someone has said to us, just calm down. And unfortunately, our brains don't suddenly think, oh, yes, I need to calm down now. It'll all be all right. So we look at other ways to do this. One of the things we look at is using sensory objects. Um, if we just take the hands, for example, your hands receive a lot of sensory information. Um, in the book, we've got a picture of what's called a cortical homunculus. That's a representation of how much power your brain devotes to the hands. And the hands are massively overrepresented. So you get a lot of information from the hands. And sometimes people find things like you know, having tassels that they can um, you know, uh, move their fingers over at night, um, having uh, you know, little soft toys made out of memory foam. Maybe there's a different type of material, sometimes bumpy material. And what we find is that if someone's really anxious, distressed and overwhelmed, if they slow down and start to feel these different objects, that can actually help to calm and regulate their system. What are some other sensory things that can help? I think um, sometimes cold water can help. Um, so a lot of people find drinking cold water can really help them um, with their anxious, heated up feelings. Um, sometimes um, being able to stroke smooth, hard, smooth, cold thing can be really helpful too. 
Um, so there's tons of different things that you can do to help people. Um, and it's finding the right thing. So having lots of options and, and offering different um, uh, choices, not all at once because that gets overwhelming in itself, but maybe one at a time and seeing which one really helps that person best. Just uh, picking up on cold water, a lot of schools around New Zealand now and the sick bay have a freezer full of ice blocks. And if someone has a panic attack, which you know unfortunately becoming more common, especially amongst younger children, instead of telling them to calm down, they give them an ice block to lick. Let's just think about the state of someone's uh, physiology when they're in a panic attack. They'll be hyperventilating, um, they'll be breathing very quickly. And so if you're forced to lick something that's cold, you can't do that quickly. You have to do that much more slowly than you would um, you know, chewing something else. And so sometimes that act of slowly licking something cold can actually calm and soothe your nervous system. Sometimes people worry, well, ice blocks are no good because there's too much sugar in them. Um, You can always go to the warehouse and buy um, moulds for the ice blocks and just make some out of water, and most children are fine with that. So uh, using coldness and ice is a really good way to help regulate uh, someone's system. The other thing that's really helpful when your um, brain and body are being flooded by adrenaline and noradrenaline is actually to counteract that by breathing. Who would have thought... Because we know that breathing releases a substance in the brain called GABA. Um, And that is really helpful at calming things down. So you get out a GABA gun and you squirt your brain with GABA. And the way you do that is breathing slowly. In, hold and out. And if you've got to do something with your hands at the same time, get some paper straws and... Put them in a wee packet, and then when you're feeling stressed, you can take the paper straws out and breathe in and out through the paper straw until it's soggy. And by that time, your gabba gun's done its best. Um, so, you know, getting paper straws and helping kids to learn how to do that breathing is really, really helpful. We also mention um, the use of smell. And this is something that might surprise a lot of people. We tend to think that, say, animals such as dogs have a good sense of smell and human beings don't really. But we're discovering that human beings do actually have quite a powerful sense of smell and it can make a big difference to our emotions. Um, Just above your nose, you've got something called the olfactory bulb, which you use to smell with. And that is, um, out of the five senses, the only part of the brain that is connected directly to the amygdala and the hippocampus, the memory and emotional parts of the brain. So for a lot of people, smells tend to be very emotional. Now, the downside of this is, unfortunately, some smells can um, bring back negative memories and sad memories. But also, um, we can use this information to try and calm people down. One of the studies we reference in the book Um, A group of scientists found the smell of jasmine can be equally calming and therapeutic as Valium. Uh, People used to sniff Valium when they got anxious and distressed. So maybe you could uh, go down to Bunnings and buy a $5 jasmine plant and have your child uh, smell that if they get really anxious or overwhelmed. So we try and get across in the book there's more than one solution to things and we try and think of some out-of-the-box solutions as well. What about free-playing children? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, how um, play has changed so much. Now play means doing a game on a video, on a pad or a, or a, a video game. Um, and 
yet children I find have run out of how to play. Um, and that's partly because parents don't have as much time as they used to, so they haven't taught their child how to play. Because believe it or not, children need to learn how to play. And they do that by playing with an adult or playing with each other. And there's so much pressure now to learn, learn, learn. But actually, a lot of countries overseas, the children don't start school till they're six or even seven. Because actually... those educational people know that children learn through play. Um, Role play, doing all sorts of play, without restriction from adults who kind of um, cramp their style sometimes. But we're also afraid of what might happen to them if they go outside and play all afternoon without any adults around. Um, That we we get frightened about what danger they might be in. And they don't learn how to cope with life in terms of problems that arise. They don't learn how to get, get, make solutions to those problems. And they don't learn how to fail and make mistakes, um, which is probably one of the most the biggest lessons we can all learn. And if you can learn that as children, it really helps when you're an adult. I think we don't talk about failures enough. So in your time, you've set up what was originally 198 Youth Health, which is a free medical centre for young people, and then you're trying to set up the Youth Hub. Could you tell us about some of the challenges and failures you had with that? Oh, gosh. I'm trying to get funding for the first time with 198. It took three years. Um, I remember one time we had a meeting of the little trust that we formed, um, and we said, oh, can we do a sausage sizzle? Anything that can raise any money at all will be really good. Um, and certainly there's been lots of setbacks with the Youth Hub, so we couldn't get resource consent because um, we had an appeal against it. Um, we couldn't get land for about two years, and you'd have thought after the earthquakes there'd be plenty of spare land in Christchurch, but no. Um, we found a number of places that all went wrong. So, yeah, um, Life is about persistence, and the earlier we can teach our children, the better. Don't give up. I think when you um, play as children, you start to learn, maybe you make a hut out of blankets or something, and if it falls down, that's okay, you try again. But one of the big issues both of us see is too many people try something, and if it doesn't work the first time, they give up, they get really upset with themselves. So one of the things that could really help children, um, particularly around anxiety and a lot of distress that they have, is to teach them that failure is okay, and a great way to do that is through free play. One of the other studies that we reference, which I think is one of the most interesting studies in the book, is it's been discovered that if you want to win a Nobel Prize, particularly in the sciences, um, a group of researchers looked at every scientist that won a Nobel Prize in the sciences, and we think, these people, they must have dedicated their lives to science, they wouldn't have wasted time on you know, art or music. But they found the opposite of that. They found every single winner in the Nobel Prizes in the sciences, they had a musical or artistic hobby. And possibly this helps people to think more creatively, it helps them to come up with different solutions, and it also probably teaches them problem solving. Say if you learn the piano, you're not going to be good the first time, you're going to make a total mess of it, you're going to put your fingers in the wrong place, and it doesn't go well. But if you persist with that, um, you'll eventually achieve something great. And so maybe some of these skills and attitudes are what helps people um, to make great discoveries in the sciences. Because certainly great discoveries don't usually happen by accident. But if they do, you've got an alert brain saying, oh, that might mean something. 
and of, often that's the creativity behind that alertness of picking things up which don't quite fall into place. And even Alexander Fleming, who accidentally discovered penicillin, it took him years to be able to get this to the point where it was a commercially available medicine. So um, we need to teach people that you know good things take time and there's a lot of setbacks. Once again, the name of our book is Calming Your Child. It is available on Amazon. It's an audio book. It's available on Kindle. And it will soon be available in New Zealand bookstores. So the name of it is Calming Your Child. Well, that's all the time that we have for on this show. Uh, this is actually my last episode of Lighthouse of Hope. I've been doing this for, I think, four and a half years. Uh, I now run a specialist mental health service, and I'm afraid I'm too busy to do any more episodes. Uh, but if you Google my name, I will be doing lots of talks and things like that around the place. So, Dame, so I'd really like to thank you for being on the show. That's a pleasure. And that's sad to hear it's the last episode, but listen to the reruns. I'm sure they'll be available, hopefully, through Plains FM. Um, and because um, they're really worth listening to. Thanks, everyone. The mental health service that I set up is called Frontiers of Hope, and we really try and bring some of the newest and latest treatments to New Zealand. Uh, there's no age limit, and we really try our absolute best to help people get well, particularly people that may not have um, recovered after they've seen other mental health professionals. And the website that you can contact us through that is foh.co.nz for Frontiers of Hope. I'd like to end with a poem now. This is um, from Alfred Lord Tennyson and his poem is Ulysses. It may be the gulfs will wash us down. It may be we shall touch the happy isles. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved heaven and earth that which we are, we are, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. That poem is about trying, even if you don't know you're going to succeed. I've taken a massive risk setting up frontiers of hope, and I don't know what the future will hold. But what I do know is I cannot sit idly by and let the mental health catastrophe that is unfolding within this country to continue. I will give it everything that I have. I will do my absolute best to try and make a meaningful dent in so many of the problems that we have. So although this is my last episode, I can assure you the mental health work that I do will not end. It will continue. I want to thank all my listeners over the years. Uh, I really do appreciate you listening. And I call this show Lighthouse of Hope because I do believe there is hope. I have called my new service Frontiers of Hope and I want that hope to continue. And when many people struggle with uh, mental illness and depression and suicide, they lose all hope. If there's one thing I could ask of my listeners... It is for you to be a beacon of hope for others in their darkest moments. Be that true friend. Be that person that they need. Be that lighthouse of hope. When the nights get cold and the lights go out The sun is gone behind the clouds And you feel lost and I'll reach out To guide you home with my lighthouse away 
Oh, oh.